0: Good morning. Uh, Our readings this morning are in three parts, Uh, the first two in Genesis, so we'll start there. Genesis 17, verses 15 to 21, and 18, 1 to 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, O that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Then moving on to chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf "'tender and good, and give it to a young man "'who prepared it quickly. "'Then he took curds and milk and the calf "'that he had prepared and set it before them, "'and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. "'They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? "'And he said, She is in the tent. "'The Lord said, I will surely return to you "'about this time next year, "'and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. "'And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son." But Sarah denied it, saying, I, w- I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. And then lastly, turning to Luke chapter 1, verse 26, for the third part of our reading. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. <clears throat> And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give... will give him to the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her.
1: Thank you very much. Please do turn back to Genesis 17 and 18. That's where our passage is. If you've got questions about those three men who appear to Abraham and what goes on there, just hold them. We're going to tackle that next next passage uh, after half-term when we come back to this passage. Um, but today, um, I want to talk about the issue of laughter. And particularly, is Christianity laughable? I think sometimes, uh, and it's good to acknowledge this, sometimes people struggle to accept Christianity, struggle to become a follower of Jesus. Uh, maybe someone here is not yet um, uh, willing to kind of step over the line and trust Jesus, because you're, you think, well, you're asking me to believe some things which sound completely crazy. Like, I love the idea of um, love your neighbor as yourself. And if I'm honest, I think I need the idea of forgiveness and grace. And I'd love to have the kind of inner peace, the clean conscience that my Christian friends have, as well as the purpose in life and the assurance facing death. I'd love all that. And actually, I look at the church, this, this amazing community with different people from different backgrounds and ages and stages, find themselves belonging as brothers and sisters. I mean, there's a lot that's attractive about being a Christian. But do I really need to believe the weird stuff, like the miracles, the, the virgin birth of Jesus to Mary that we just read about in Luke 1, or the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which we talk about at Easter, Um Or even kind of harder to get your head around, a final day of resurrection where every single human being is raised from the dead if they've died and faces God to give account for their lives. And then there's an eternal new creation where people live forever in new new resurrection bodies, either in paradise with God or in judgment. I mean, I love the community. I love the purpose. I love the forgiveness. I think I might need that. but, But do I have to believe the weird stuff? Those kind of ideas. In fact, to be completely blunt, isn't it kind of laughable that grown adults actually believe that stuff in Edinburgh today? I mean, this is the modern age, the age of science. Isn't it just kind of children's stories, religious myths, exaggerations, you know, traditions with some embellishments? The kind of thing you'd you'd add if you wanted people to have some hope from religious stories, the opium of the masses. But to actually believe it's real, like it actually is going to happen, Oh, isn't that laughable? Well, I don't know if anyone here this morning is coming with that kind of view. Um, certainly last night, I imagine there were some people like that in the room. We, we had the rugby game on, um, and uh, there are a number of folk who, who aren't Christians who came along. Uh, it was a great time, and Dave Hampton gave a brilliant 10-minute introduction to Jesus. And I imagine some people sat there and thought, well, oh, this, this just sounds too out of this world to be true, too strange to be true, maybe too good to be true. Here's the thing, um, even even if there's no one here with that view at the moment, it's very wide in our culture. Here's the thing that's less widely known or appreciated in our culture, is that scoffing at the God of the Bible is not a new phenomenon. It's not something that was invented um, after the Enlightenment. Uh, In fact, even Christians struggling with doubts is not a new thing. fact, the Bible is full of people who struggle to believe what God says and what God is doing, promising to do. We see many examples. The famous one, I guess, is Doubting Thomas, one of Jesus' own disciples, who despite reliable eyewitness testimony from his closest friends that Jesus really had risen from the dead and they really had seen him, despite all that, he said, no, it's not possible. It's a laughable thought. Unless I've actually put my hand in the wounds." I'm not going to believe it's happened. It's just too improbable. Actually, doubting Thomas, he may be the most famous doubter in the Bible, but he's not the first one. The fact is, no one expects miracles at any point in human history and any point of Bible history. No one expects miraculous resurrections or miracle births. They were actually unusual then, as well as today. And in our Genesis reading, chapter 17 and 18, um, second half of 17, first half of 18, we hear two people struggling to believe what God's saying. In fact, laughing at God's saying, or what God's promising. Thinking it's laughable what God's saying he's going to do. Just have a look with me. So chapter 17, verse 17. Here's Abraham first. He's just been told Sarah will have a child. And verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? Laughable. A miracle birth like that. Then chapter 18, verse 10, this is now Sarah. She's overhearing another conversation about it. Uh, Verse 10, the Lord said, I'll surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That is the heart of what this passage is about. It says it twice so we don't miss it. And actually, Isaac's name means he laughs. So that's another clue about what's going on. Uh, This is all about the kind of promised birth of Isaac. And it's all about the seemingly laughable promises of God. The seemingly impossible plan of God to bring miraculous life out of death. And I have to say, just personally, as someone who I do find myself sometimes thinking, is the message of Jesus just too too big to be true, or too, too, too strange, too beyond our experience to be true, or just too good to be true? Well, Genesis 17 and 18 has been a huge encouragement, a huge strengthener of, our, of my faith, because God knows, God knows we sometimes struggle with that kind of thought. He knows that when it's something our eyes can't see or our experience can't corroborate, we can find it hard to trust him, especially when it goes against our natural assumptions of the way the world works. And so, on the way to Jesus, Jesus was always the plan through the Bible, on the way to Jesus, right at the start of the plan, God put this miracle birth. This is an episode where he shows he's absolutely determined to work through a a supernaturally born child, a miracle baby, a flat-out impossibility, life coming from death. And we're going to see over the coming chapters that Abraham and Sarah, their laughter moves from incredulous laughter here, you can't be serious, that can't happen, to later joyful amazement. I can't believe it, it has happened. This is amazing. And so... This morning, I want to ask us, um, having seen there, kind of, there are two ways to laugh at God. There's the scoffer laugh that says it's impossible; it's too out of this world. Or there's the joyful, wondrous laugh—the that is so amazing kind of laugh. By the end, I want to ask us which one we are. So, let me pray before we go any further. Let me pray for God's help as we dive in. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. Please, by your spirit, help us to come to your word, not telling you what's possible, but listening to you and being shaped by you and having our faith strengthened by you. And we do pray that we would be filled with the joy and amazement of your glorious promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, on the back of the service sheet, you can see an outline of where we're going this morning. We've got three points um, just before we dive into them, let me remind us of what's going on in Genesis 17. So, if you were here last week, um, uh, the focus of the chapter so far was all about who gets to belong in Abraham's family. Who are the true inheritors of God's blessing, which is going to run in this family? So, who gets to belong? Um, uh, and you might say, Oh, I know, I know, it's whoever stood up here and done the membership promises. Um, or back then, you might say, Oh, I know, the outward sign is circumcision. If you've been circumcised, you get to belong. But actually, those are just outward signs of the real thing, which is faith, faith in God's promises. Um, In chapter 15, long before circumcision came, Abraham believed God and it was credited as righteousness. So that's chapter 17 so far. Um, To belong to this great family of promise, you have to trust God, trust his promises But actually, that is only half the picture of how someone belongs to this family. If you like, the camera has been down at ground level at the moment. It's been showing the kind of the human side of it, the response on our level side, which is trusting God, taking God at His word. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. But that's only one side of the coin. And the second half of chapter 17 and the first half of chapter 18 are going to pull back the curtain and show like from above what's actually happening, show the God's eye view on things. And it turns out who belongs to this family is not primarily about us choosing God, but about God choosing us, God's choice to save us, which includes giving us the faith to trust him. Faith is a gift of God, says Ephesians 2. All of which brings us to our first point, um, this first point of three. God gets to choose where his covenant blessing goes. God gets to choose where his covenant blessing goes. Now, this point is being made. It's in chapter 17, verses 15 to 21. So just scan your eyes down there. Right at the heart of that, it's all about um, God promising Sarah will give birth to this child, Isaac. But in verses 18 and 19, there's this kind of negotiation between God and Abraham. And the key word, that's the kind of heart of it, and the key word in those verses is the word no. God says no. What's going on? So, uh, a couple of weeks ago in chapter 16, we saw Abraham and Sarah were getting um, worried that with such a delay, God's promises aren't happening. Kind of, they think God's not going to deliver, so we need to find our own way to do it. They decided to force the, the matters into their own hands. So together they conspired for Abraham to sleep with Sarah's servant, Hagar. Now That was a terrible plan. It had tragic results. Um, but Ishmael was born, so they now have a child, um, albeit not by Sarah. God was very gracious to Hagar and to Ishmael, far kinder than anyone else was in that passage. Um, But here's the important thing. God is not going to change his plan about who the blessing is going to come through. That's what's going on in verse 15. Um, So verse 15, God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I'll bless her, and moreover, I'll give you a son by her. I'll bless her, she'll become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So God's determined it's going to be Sarah through her, not Hagar that this great multinational family comes about. And of course, that's what makes Abraham laugh. Because on multiple counts, that's not just improbable, it's impossible. All the way from Genesis 11, we've been told repeatedly, Sarai cannot have children. And now there's decades of evidence to prove that. On top of that, because of the delay there's been, well, it's now even Abraham's. Now past it. As he says, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Or Sarah, Shall Sarah who's 90 years old bear a child? Obviously the answer medically is no. It's impossible. Impossible. It seems laughable. And so Abraham is opening a negotiation. He's suggesting, Couldn't we, couldn't we you know, do something slightly less difficult, less miraculous, uh, have a different kind of approach to the salvation plan? Let's just work with what we've got, like make, make the best of the raw materials already in play, God. Verse 18, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Striking that Abraham's suggesting this because surely in chapter 16, he saw what a mess he made, kind of trying to take matters into his own hands. But he's still trying to do it with God, say, well, can't we do it a different way, a way where we contribute a bit, a way that's easier to believe. I mean, at least there's a child there to start with. If you're zoning out, zone in for this. Through the history of the church, there have been well-meaning but totally misguided attempts to make Christianity less miraculous and radical. One of the biggest ones was, couldn't we contribute some good works And your grace, God, just top those good works up, rather than it being all of grace, all of faith. You know, couldn't God work with what we bring to the table? That was the Roman Catholic position that the Reformation was all about. To clarify, that's not biblical. It's 100% God's grace. It's Christ alone, faith alone. More recently than that, there's been an attempt to make Christianity more appealing to modern people, post-enlightenment kind of scientific people, by stripping out the miracles. Maybe the feeding of the 5,000 was really just a story about a lot of generosity. A big pack lunch. Maybe the, the resurrection of Jesus. He didn't physically rise from the dead. I mean, we know that's impossible now, um, I think they knew it was impossible then. But anyway, he didn't physically rise from the dead. Maybe he just rose in the hearts of the disciples. Like the idea of Jesus lives on. That was the liberal agenda of the last hundred years. And it has decimated the Western church. As ministers and congregations lose their faith. Ironically, around the world, churches that still believe in miracles are growing. Striking. When Abraham came to God and said, hang on couldn't we just work with what we've got? We've got Ishmael. Like we could kind of work with that, couldn't we? It'd be much easier to believe. God said, no. Not your choice, but mine. And actually, I'm not going to lower the bar of my plan to work kind of with your efforts and with your kind of natural humanistic ideas. No, I get to say where my blessing is going, and my blessing is going somewhere miraculous. Uh, it's going where I choose. The brother I choose. Now, um, this point is made all the way through Genesis. We've just got the first one here, but we're going to see it again and again. God choosing the unexpected brother to, to, to uh, to keep his promises and his line of inheritance going. So in this case, Ishmael was the firstborn, the eldest, and so culturally you'd be thinking, well, he gets the blessing. But no, Isaac, the miracle child, will get the blessing. The next generation, Esau, You'd expect to be the inheritor, but no, Jacob will get the blessing. The next generation, Reuben, firstborn, but Joseph gets blessing. Next generation, you'd think, well, okay, I've got it now, it's Joseph and his kids. No, Judah gets the blessing. He'll be the son chosen to rule. The point being, it's not just kind of automatically going where you expect. It's not just cultural expectations. No, God is deliberately ripping up the rule book to say, I get to choose where my blessing goes. Again and again, God emphasizes his free, sovereign grace, choosing to save people. In one sense, that's wonderful news. It's the reason why no Christian should ever be proud. We have no cause to boast. Not because we've worked out Jesus or because we've brought so much faith to the table. No, it's a gift from God. No Christian should ever be proud. But I think sometimes when we start to see that, and we'll see it so starkly as we go through Genesis... I think sometimes we can, we can struggle a bit because it, it might feel, oh, hang on, is God being a bit unfair, a bit harsh to kind of you know pick favourites? Isn't it a bit unfair on the innocent brothers who are ch- not chosen to be the line of blessing? That's a really important question. Um, over the years, Christians have, have come up with some proposed solutions, like, well, maybe God just responds to our faith. Maybe he looks ahead and sees we're going to trust him and then thinks, okay, so I'll choose you because you're going to choose me. That is back to front, though, in Genesis. It's very clear, and it will become more clear, that God is the one who's choosing. But we say, well, how's that fair, God? What about the innocent brothers, Ishmael, Esau, others who get lift off? Well, God is still kind to Ishmael. Um, Verse 20, he he does actually respond to to, um, Abraham's prayer. He does bless uh, Ishmael in some ways. But more importantly, actually, to that question, what about the innocent brothers? Genesis would say there are no innocent brothers. Actually, that's been made so clear by this book so far. Think about Genesis 16. All three characters, Abraham, Sarai, and Hagar... We're all sinning against one another and against God. And it wasn't just that that family. If you think about Genesis 3 to 11, all humanity. It's horrible, actually. It's just spiraling down in ever-increasing rebellion against God and violence to one another and selfishness in our hearts. That's the first thing to notice. There is no one innocent. And so if, if our objection is coming from a place of, well, what about justice, God? I mean, what about being utterly fair the stark fact is that pure justice would lead to, to judgment and curse, not to blessing for anyone. There would be no story of Abraham to read if God was just being just. It would be story over. That's why when, in Romans 9, when Paul's grappling with this question of how can God choose to save some and not others, he's grappling whether it's fair, and he, he comes back to exactly this passage, God's choice of whom to save. And he quotes these words from Exodus, where God says this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. The point being, we're talking about mercy here. Like undeserved kindness and leniency. Compassion. We can't complain where God chooses to show mercy, where he chooses to pardon that's the first thing to say: no one is an innocent victim of injustice here. But secondly, um, uh, I, um, that's, and that's, sorry, that's point one: um, God gets to choose where His covenant goes. God gets to choose. He's He's kind to everyone. We'll hear that tonight in Matthew, with Jesus saying, "God sends the rain on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the wicked. He sends rain to everyone. Even here, He's kind to both brothers. But He gets to choose where His salvation goes, His eternal blessing." Still, though, we might have the question, okay, but I see you're making a choice, but is it just an arbitrary choice? Like, have you just like 50-50, well, not Ishmael, but Isaac? Or is there some reason why God is so determined to pick Isaac? This is where the passage gets exciting, I think. This is the thing that's amazed me, thrilled me, actually, this week. Uh, This is the bit that links with all the stuff I said in, in the introduction about how bits of Christianity might seem laughable, Well, here we go. Um, Why Isaac, not Ishmael? First off, think think what Ishmael represents. Um, So we saw in chapter 16, uh, Sarah and Abraham were failing to trust God. They didn't think God would deliver. And they were doing a DIY effort, a do-it-yourself, their own efforts to deliver God's blessings. Um, uh, So uh, Ishmael represents a kind of, we'll do it ourselves, and Isaac will represent, we'll trust God to deliver the impossible. Really different ways to approach God and his blessings. And let me say, if you are new to Christian things, that's, that's one of the most important things to get your head around. Christianity is not like other religions. It's not just do this, do this, do this, and then God will be happy. Quite the opposite, actually. It says, no, we can't do those things. Not, not kind of perfectly in a way that God would be happy with. And so unlike other religions in the world, the good news of Jesus is it has been done. Jesus has done it for you, 100% God doing it. God delivers. And so the blessing is not going to go to the DIY son, Ishmael, but the wait and trust son, the child of promise, Isaac. That's how Galatians picks up this passage. You can have a look if you want later um, in Galatians 4. Um, But actually, it's not just that Isaac is a child of promise, not a child of DIY. I think even more importantly, and this is our second point, point two, God chooses to bless through the miracle birth son. Isaac is the miracle birth son, and God chooses to bless through him. Now, when you read this passage, one of the things that's really obvious is how determined God is for Sarah to be the mum of the covenant. Verse 15, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I'll bless her Moreover, I'll give you a son by her. I'll bless her, and she shall become nations. Or verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, you shall call his name Isaac. Or verse 21, But I'll establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. That's the first episode. Look on to chapter 18, verse 9, because it's the same again. 18, verse 9, They said to Abraham, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah, 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 God's saying. Why does it have to be her? Why is she so determined it would be her? Well, specifically this, God is determined for there to be a miraculous child born as the offspring through whom his his promises will come. He wanted a supernatural birth to be the first birth of this covenant family. See, right from the start, as I said, Sarah, not a promising candidate to be the mother of great people, told in Genesis 11, she's unable to have children. Now it's got worse. Just look at chapter 18, verse 11. Uh, we told it again. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That's a tactful way of saying she's beyond the menopause. Both Father and mother, medically speaking, are past it in terms of childbirth. There's zero chance. And yet, here is where God plants his flag and says, I will make you a great people. I will bless you with life when your bodies are as good as dead. Why is he doing that? Well, it is all about Jesus. God has been planning Jesus since before the beginning of the Bible, Um, And it becomes very clear that that's always been the plan when he gives us clues like this. You see, God had a miracle birth offspring to show us. A a thought that might be laughable. A bit like the virgin birth when it finally turns up might be laughable. Maybe you're someone here who, who thinks, or you have a friend like this, who thinks it's going to take an awful lot to convince me that there was ever a virgin birth. And certainly that a virgin birth, a miraculous birth like that, could be the center of all of God's plans to save the world. Take an awful lot. How about 2,000 years before it happened, God deliberately gave you a picture? The very first baby born um, to be the covenant inheritor was a miraculous offspring. Maybe you say, well, uh, okay, it's a bit unnerving, but maybe that's a, maybe, maybe that's a coincidence. Next generation. Again. The the wife of of, um, Isaac can't have children. And God does it again. Third generation. It happens again. Sarah, here. Rebecca, Genesis 25. Rachel, Genesis 29. Three in a row. And then on through the Bible, Hannah, one Samuel. And then... Brilliantly, Luke 1, a double whammy. Elizabeth and Mary, a double whammy to show you. Nothing's impossible with God. This is the plan. Now at this point, I need to, I need to clarify. Um, I think there's a really unhelpful, really wrong and actually pastorally damaging way to understand these stories of miraculous birth. There's a way to draw a straight line across in application from Sarah and Abraham, a childless couple, to couples today who are struggling with infertility. In every community, in every church, there'll always be some people in that circumstance. Because we live in a fallen world, a world under curse, and one of the specific areas of pain and futility, Genesis 3 said, would be this area of having children. Now some of those situations we'll be aware of, because people have said, others we won't, it'll be private grief. Some of them will be current, a kind of current struggle. Some of them will be historical miscarriages that no one knows about. For some people, it will be a background ache. Others, it will be an acute daily battle or a monthly battle. All of those people will be experiencing grief. And there's a really dangerous way of reading the Bible that says, well, look, it happened here. And, and whatever happened to these people, if you just have faith... What happened to you? I remember being told that when Jesse and I were grieving what we thought was permanent infertility. We'd been told that, and it'd been a number of years. Being told, just think what God did with all these people in the Bible. You know, Sarah, Rebecca, just, just trust him, just pray. It'll happen to you. Of course, the problem is, each of those women, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, had a specific promise from God that he would give them a huge family. Likewise, Hannah, Samuel 1, given a specific promise from the prophet that she would have a child. Mary, Elizabeth, given specific promises from angels that they would have children. For them, it was a matter of faith because God had said. But we can't put promises into God's mouth. By all means, it's fine to pray, as a couple struggling with that, that God would grant children miraculously. We prayed that. By all means, it's good to pray with folks struggling with that, if they want that. But actually, we can't promise it will happen, and sometimes it doesn't, and we mourn with those who mourn. The point of these stories is not to say you can expect pregnancy if you live by faith. So then, what is the point? Because it's coming up a lot. I mean, for folk in that situation, this must be a pretty raw term in Genesis. Why does it keep being mentioned? Well, Because God wants us to know he will choose to bless through a miracle birth son. He is preparing the way for Jesus. If we find ourselves kind of grappling with, can it really be true, the miraculous birth of Jesus? Can it really be true that all of God's purposes and plans of blessing revolve around that baby? Yes. He said it right up front. Now, the kind of laughter that Abraham have, has here and, and Sarah has here, I think, is not good laughter. I mean, it's clearly not good with Abraham, because the next thing he does is propose an alternative plan to save the world. What about, what about Ishmael? No. And I think it's not good with Sarah either. Just look at verse 13. Um, the Lord said to Abraham, verse 13 of chapter 18, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord?'" At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year. Sarah will have a son. And then verse 15, she tries to cover up that she ever, she ever doubted. Verse 15, Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, no, you did laugh. God sees what we make of his promises, sees right into our hearts. Interestingly, in Luke 1, there's these two birth announcements. You get one to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, one to Mary. Zechariah just can't believe it. He's got the angel Gabriel standing in front of him, telling him, you're going to have a miraculous child. And he's like, can't believe it. And Gabriel says, okay, you're not going to speak again until the birth. God sees our reactions. But then Mary in Luke 1, a brilliant model of faith. She's equally nonplussed. How can this be since I'm a virgin? It's medically impossible, Lord. And yet when the angel says, all things are, are possible for God, echoing verse 14 here, is anything too hard for the Lord? Or she says, I'm your servant, let it be according to your word. There's the right response, trusting that God can pull off the impossible. Okay, that's our second point. Um, Just before we stop and have coffee, we're on the final straight. Um, But there's one other thing, I think, one other significance to it being Isaac So, so far we said it's not Ishmael, the DIY approach to God, the the child of effort rather than the child of promise. Um, And it is Isaac because he's the miracle-born child, the son who points to the greater offspring of Abraham to come, the son Jesus, miraculously born, and through whom all of God's blessings will come to the world. That's what we've seen so far. But thirdly, I think we need to begin to grapple with this question just briefly. Is age decay Curse and death too hard for God to deal with? I think that's the question that Isaac raises. That's the question that the the age of Abraham and Sarah and her infertility raises. Can God bring life where what you can see is death and curse and decay? Now, I'm saying that because Every time we come across um, this issue of of pain in childbearing or infertility, it is a reminder of Genesis 3. God created a wonderful world, Genesis 1 and 2. It was abundant in life and full of purpose. The command to be fruitful and multiply was a wonderful thing for humanity uh, to do, serving God. But, But actually from Genesis 3, that became a very difficult thing to do. And actually, it's not just Sarah's infertility here that's the problem. It's the age, isn't it, of Abraham and Sarah. When Romans 4 and Hebrews 11 look back to this event, they describe Abraham with an unflattering phrase. Abraham was as good as dead. As good as dead. He looked at his body. He looked at his body. Sarah looked at his body and said, it's as good as dead. All I can see is decay. What are the chances? Well, none. Zero. It's impossible for life to come out of death uh, now. And God's been waiting, so it's got more impossible 23 years later since God made the last promise. And yet remember that question in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you really think that the creator of the cosmos can't deal with this problem? Do you really think the one who spoke the universe into existence who breathed into humanity to give us life. Do you really think he can't deal with death and the curse and the decaying state of this world? This is our third point. Is age, decay, curse, death too hard for God to deal with? And this actually is where the issues of this passage connect with the stuff I raised in the introduction, the things we struggle to believe. So yeah, we do struggle to believe that when Jesus was dead and put in a tomb for 3 days, that he actually came out alive. We find that hard to believe. It's not what you normally see. Even more, we struggle to believe that that and this is a claim right at the heart of the Christian message that every single human being, whether they were buried or cremated, every human being is going to be raised to new life and stand before God and give account for their life. We find that hard to believe might even find that laughable sometimes too big too strange too out of this world too against medical knowledge to be possible to conceive of but actually god right at the start of the story said i can bring life out of death and i'll prove it with this first child and the next two generations Do not think I'm limited by what's possible, humanly speaking. Do not think I'm bound by the kind of natural laws, which is just the normal way I work, the things you're used to. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I did it right at the start with Isaac. I did it right in the middle with Jesus coming out of that tomb. And I will do it right at the end when I raise people, all people from the dead to face the throne of judgment. And so as we come to an end, I want to say there are two kinds of laughing. There's two ways to laugh, you might say. Isaac's name, I said, means he laughs. And as we go through this section, there'll be more to come. But as we go through, we're going to see two kinds of laughing. There's an incredulous kind of laughing where Abraham and Sarah start in today's passage. The scoffing kind of laugh. Like, you, you, you can't be serious. I mean, come on, that is impossible. We know better than that now. That's where they start, and and they can't stay there, because that is not the place of faith. Or there's a different kind of laugh. It's the laugh of just sheer joy and wonder. Sarah's going to get here by chapter 21. She'll say, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Joyful wonder. That's how we should feel about the promises of resurrection life in Jesus. Like Mary, we should say, I don't really know how this is going to happen, but I trust you. Like Sarah, as she ends up, we should be saying, actually, this is wonderful. And I want to speak particularly to those who are grieving at the moment. It might be due to childlessness. It might be from bereavement. It might be from sickness. It might just be from this life just not quite working the way you hoped it would. You look sideways and it seems like everyone else's life is kind of coming together and yours isn't. Well, this is our hope. The Almighty God has already proven his credentials to bring life instead of death, to bring blessing instead of curse, to raise people from the dead. And that is what he's going to do. And it will last forever this life may well be tough, actually. (laughs) Likewise, those of us who are really conscious that we're aging and sad about that. I think there's lots of wonderful things, actually, about aging. It brings with it a wisdom. The Bible is positive in lots of ways about it, much more than our culture is. But nevertheless, you may find that frustration of my, my physical strength is fading. I can feel myself weaker this year than I was last. That can be a real grief to some. It can be the greatest fear of some. Well, God has proven himself to be the one who will not let death or decay have the final word. He's shown himself to be one. With this first child, I am the one who can bring resurrection life. Can we believe it? I really hope we leave laughing with joy. Joy. Not scoffing at God's promises. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much that you are more than capable of bringing life from the dead. Thank you for this picture of Jesus so early in the Bible, so clearly at the center of your plan to save that there would be a a miraculously born child, the son of promise. Thank you for the picture that it would be all of grace, you doing it, not us, by our own efforts. And thank you most of all for this hope we have, that death is not the end, that we will not remain in the grave, but that as Jesus was raised, as Isaac was born, so we will be raised. Help us to trust that. And so even in the sorrows of life, have the joy
0: of eternity in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.